If you would take the Bibles, the devices, whatever you have on your lap, even your handout because it's on the back, and you would go with me this morning to Philippians chapter 1. For those who are visiting with us or have not been with us maybe for some time, we're well on our way on this journey through Philippians. All four weeks, all 11 past, uh, verses, we've made it. <laughs> We're making our worth way through this book, this journey with this amazing congregation, the Church of Philippi. The Apostle Paul, writing to this Church of Philippi, uh, so far we've studied verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, and we've looked at these emphases. Gospel-centered relationships. We highlighted this. That as believers, we're not meant to live our spiritual lives on an island by ourselves. Neither are we meant to live our lives up in a tower, watching everybody without participating with everybody. We are meant to live our spiritual lives in community, as a congregation. Relationships are essential in the body of Christ. Um, just a quick note on this. Oh, we don't get into many TV shows uh, but there's one on History Channel that's called Alone. Any of you see that show called Alone? Okay, that's one of our family's favorite. Well, Hannah doesn't care as much for it. She'll sit there and endure it. Um, but that's one of my dreams is to get out there and do something like that, to survive as long as you can. So what they do, Alone is amazing, all right? So what they do is they pick 10 contestants, and you have 10 items that you can go. It's like a real-life survivor, really. It's not the one where you have camera people all over, you go by yourself. They dropped them off for two seasons on, on Vancouver Island. And you survive as long as you can with your 10 items. You have to get your own food, build your own shelters, fires, all of that. <laughs> well, um, they're on like season five now, and we'll every once in a while turn one on. And I absolutely love it because there's more than just a physical survival going on out there. People catching fish. And they don't have a, a cameraman with them. Part of the show is you have to tote around this like 80-pound box. What it does is it anchors them in place. They drop them off. I think uh, they did one in Patagonia. Now they're, the one I'm watching is in Mongolia. In the wilderness of Mongolia, they drop them off with this 80-pound basket or this, this, this bin of stuff. They record their own show. That's part of the contract they have is they record themselves doing life. Well, there's some of the most amazing survivalists that become part of this. They know how to build a shelter, build a fire, even in the water. They know how to catch fish and, and, and even eat bark off of trees. <laughs> These people are crazy. They're eating the bugs. They're, this is gross. But they're, they get to the point after like day 40 that they're so hungry, they're, they're smashing mice and cooking up the little 30 calories of mice and eating them. And they're surviving as long as they can. And last person standing gets $500,000. I think last season they made it to like 80 days. You would think they'd go longer. Well, they're in Mongolia on this one deal. And it's getting colder because it's in the fall. And snow is starting to fall. And some of these most amazing survivalists are out there. However, they're working through more than just a physical survival. This week we're saddened because the episodes we're watching, the guy we were cheering for, he tapped. They've got a little device where they can dial in and have the people come pick them up. Why? Here's why. He got lonely. <laughs> After like 40 days, he got sick and tired of talking to himself. You know, there's only so much you can do talking to the trees. 
So much you can do looking at the river and listening to it, as beautiful as it was in Mongolia, he tapped because he was lonely. And I'm watching that, I'm thinking, that's so familiar with the body of Christ. There's some people that become part of the body of Christ and they're in it for, you know, 10, 15, 20 weeks. And what happens? They tap. Why? Because they haven't connected with the body of Christ. They haven't taken the initiative to build relationships. They tap because they get lonely. They tap because they're sick and tired of talking to themselves. (laughs) They want to talk to someone else. I'm going to tell you, this book of Philippians is about building relationships. It's one of the reasons why we're studying this book, is that we build relationships. Gospel-centered relationships are what this book is all about. And I'm only in the review, so sorry. (laughs) We went from that to to gospel-centered gratitude. The next couple verses, we see Paul's heart overflow with gratitude. As I've been thinking through that, even this week with like tears coming to my eyes, I'm so grateful for this body of Christ. We've been here like half a year now almost. I can't believe it. Maybe five months, whenever that is. But you have showed so much love to my family. You've served us in so many ways. In some very tangible ways. As I'm thinking through this passage, yeah, tears will come to my eyes. So grateful for this body here that God has privileged us to be part of. And Paul, through this book, Philippians, in Philippians 1, talks about gospel-centered relationships, gospel-centered gratitude. And then last week, two weeks ago, sorry, we talked about gospel-centered love. This is love that overflows. Love that abounds. In the body of Christ, love that doesn't just check off, yep, I showed an expression of love to you this week. We'll see you around next year about this time, and I'll show you another expression of love. In the body of Christ, love abounds, it overflows. Well, that's what we've looked at so far in this book. But, and we've been interacting with this question. Before we even get into the passage today, has the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ radically transformed every area of our lives? So this book demands an answer to that question. Has the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ radically transformed everything you do? Every decision you make? I mean, from the time you get up to the time you lay your head on your pillow at night, has the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ transformed every decision you've made, every perspective in your life, every every way you process trials, every way you process actions or reactions, every conversation you have, is it run through the grid of the gospel? What do I mean? I mean that we see things differently. (laughs) We put on different glasses, and here's the glasses, that I don't deserve anything good because I'm a sinner. (laughs) Anything good that's happened in my life is only by God's grace and mercy. He has saved my soul. And because he saved my soul, I'm going to express that love to everyone I come into contact with. It's seen through different goggles, different glasses. Every day of our lives, we see through different glasses. Where the world around us sees through glasses that has an M and an E on the lenses. Me. Everything I do is about me. How big I can make myself look. How much I can serve myself during that day. What I can do to make my schedule work. And don't you dare. Don't you dare bump into my bubble of life. 
because fireworks are going to happen. <laughs> but when we put on the gospel glasses, we see things differently. We see people as not obstacles or people not like statues that we avoid. We see them as people that we can serve. Why? Because Jesus Christ served us. These are the glasses we put on. This is gospel-centered love. So this concept of being gospel-centered isn't some Christianese word we're just grabbing and throwing around for a couple weeks. It's a real deal. This is the hub. The gospel of God's grace and glory is the hub that spins. And all the actions in our life rotate around the fact that we are sinners saved by God's grace. Anything that we want to boast about, we cannot. Because as Paul says in Galatians, our only boast is in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That he saved us. Well, today we're going to kind of develop that thought of gospel-centered life. As we go through the rest of chapter one, we're just going to develop this a little bit at a time. I don't want to rush through this because there's an incredibly important concepts. And I will tell you even this, that handout you have in front of you, we're going to get about halfway through it today. <laughs> we're going to go through a couple verses and I can already tell because I'm talking a lot already that we're not going to make it through the rest. We're going to put it off till next week. <laughs> But what we're talking about today is this concept of gospel-centered life. And I want to kind of zero in with Paul on this. Suffering. What comes to mind when you see this? It's not super clear up there, but you get the idea. What comes into mind when you think of suffering? You could put, you could cross out suffering if you want to and use another word, trials. Or cross that out and put another word, affliction. How do we process as believers suffering? Trials. Affliction. I mean, what are you talking about? Physical trials in your life. I mean, some walking into church today that were in pain. You got out of bed this morning and you're in pain. You're going to go to bed tonight in pain. How, how do you process physical suffering? How do you process emotional suffering? There's some that last night in this body, I'm, I, I'm convinced of it, that some went to bed last night probably with tears in your eyes. You cried yourself to sleep because of some emotional pain that you're carrying with you. I mean, and we're not just talking any one of us adults in here. There are teens in this room that probably on a regular basis cry themselves to sleep because of the emotional pain they're carrying. How do we process that? Financial suffering. Well, something came that you weren't expecting. I was talking to an older fellow last week. Something came in his life, and he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars like that. Now, in his latter years, he's... he's I don't know how much longer he's going to make it, but he's living like one week at a time. Everything crashed in on him. How, how do we process financial suffering? Uh, or a big one is this, relational suffering. <laughs> Some moms and dads in this room, that your heart is breaking because there's a child that you know that you've wanted to talk to every day for the last five years, but they will not answer your call. They will not respond to your text. 
let alone come and visit you. There's relational difficulties, relational suffering. I, I can imagine with some of the college age or young people here in this room where friends you had in the past won't even talk to you now. They just give you the stiff arm. And you're burdened about that. So as believers, how do we process suffering? Financial, physical, relational, emotional. And you can continue to develop that. How do we process this? Well, in brief, we know very specifically, to kind of summarize it, that God uses this pretty much for two reasons in the life of a believer. One, Hebrews talks about this in chapter 12, that God uses these sufferings to kind of get us headed back in the right way. As a loving father, he brings discipline in our lives to kind of get us headed back in the right direction. That's one reason. But there's another reason that Paul, James, Peter all talk about. Here's the reason. Because God wants to grow you in your faith. Romans 5 says this. He wants to grow your hope, not in you, but in him. He wants to grow our dependence on God. That is the purpose of suffering to get a, set us right, and then also to keep us right. That is the purpose of suffering in our lives. But, you know, that all sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. But I still cry when I go to bed at night. My heart's still breaking. That all sounds idealistic. But Pastor, I still can't talk to this person. Pastor, my back still hurts. How do you feel honestly when you're going through suffering? And let's just bring it down to life right here. Real deal life right here. You're walking with God. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love God's word and you read it regularly. You walk in the spirit. Every reaction you have is directed by the Holy Spirit of God. In every way possible, you are living Christ to those around you. Yeah, it's not going to happen all the time, but if you do respond in, in a fleshly manner out of anger, you're quick to bring that to God's throne of grace. I mean, you fully submit yourself all the time to a gracious God. And you look at your life and you're like, I don't know how I could walk with God more. Yeah, he's growing me, but I'm humble. I'm, I'm in love with my God. And I seek a beautiful Savior. What happens? Just like the real deal conversation when you're walking with God and this happens. If we really reach deep into our hearts, what is the temptation of our soul? I mean, I can say it. <laughs> You're walking with God. You love God with all your heart and suffering comes. Maybe a death. Maybe a, a broken down car or a burned down house. What's, what's the temptations of our hearts? Really, God? <laughs> really? All along the way, God, I've devoted myself to you. Now, Really? Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's a down deep expressions of our soul. Really, God? And then you read a passage like we're going to interact with today. And you're like, man, I'm struggling to make it another day. How in the world am I going to actually proclaim Jesus and he is good when I'm going through that trial? 
How am I going to put God's glory on display and his splendor? How am I going to lift that high and talk to people about what good God is when I can't even get out of bed in the morning? Do you understand what we're talking about here? Okay, let me throw another curveball about at that. You're struggling to get out of bed, and boy, you're like, man, you are doomsday in it today, Pastor Andrew. <laughs> All right, we're talking about some heavy stuff. But let me throw another curveball. That you're struggling on your own to get out of bed in the morning. You're depending on God. You're doing whatever you can to cling to God with all you've got, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. First Peter 5. You're holding on with all you've got, and then, and then, Sister Sally Smug comes around. Brother Bob Better Than You comes around, and he looks at you and he says, you're in sin. <laughs> you ever been there? You're struggling with that trial because you don't have enough faith in God. I'm going to tell you, you want to put four knuckles straight through that dude's nose. That's just, a, that's just a flesh. Like, how can you say that to me? You don't know my life. I mean, this curveball is when Jesus' people who are surrounding you, who are supposed to be your biggest fans and support in life, when Jesus' people start to turn on you if you've gone through a trial and start to look at you and just like Job in the book of Job, look at you and say, something must be wrong with your life since you're going through this. You're talking about a big God? <laughs> you must not have enough faith. That's your problem. And so you run home and you fall on your knees and God, how more can I submit myself to you? And you get back up off your knees and you live for God and they come back to you to the next week and say, nope, you still don't have enough faith. What? So if that's ever been you, and maybe you felt that way, maybe you've never interacted with it in that deep of a way, but if, if that has ever been you, I'm going to tell you, you're in good company in this passage. This is where the Apostle Paul is in Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 18. Where do we find Paul in Philippians 1, 12 through 18? He's in jail. This is a man that traveled around the known world proclaiming the name of Jesus. And now he's, as Acts 28 says, he's under house arrest. He could be at the depths, I mean the bottom of the barrel they say, right? That's where he could find himself. And if it couldn't get any worse, Paul is chained up to the Praetorian Guard. He can't go anywhere. If it couldn't get any worse, these people are traveling around to his churches that he planted, and they're mocking him. That Paul, his faith is discredited. Look at him. He's in jail. They're looking at the Apostle Paul's ministry and saying, that guy, don't listen to him. What can Paul do in defense? He can do nothing other than pray. He could do nothing other than share the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome. And that is exactly what Paul does. Would you go with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul pouring out his heart to these people he loves in Philippi. I mean, we're not going to go back to the whole context here. But Paul... Sharing in the suffering, he pours out his heart, and what does he say? He says this, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of my brethren become brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Quick time out right there. What's Paul doing? Paul is telling him there's a purpose for this suffering. God has me going through this for a specific reason. He continues on, and this is the part we'll look at next week, but I wanted to bring it out there because this is all within context. He says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Okay, quick time out again. We're talking about Jesus' people consumed with rivalry and fighting. Does that sound familiar to anything you've gone through in your past? People that claim the name of Jesus, Jesus followers, and they claim that Jesus washed their sins away. And I honestly believe in this passage, that's who they were. But they were struggling with envy and rivalry. And they were shooting Paul full of holes while he was in jail. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, verse 15, but others from goodwill. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What are we going to do? Paul's down, kick him hard. That's what these people are doing. Here's Paul's response that we're going to get to in the next two weeks, a response that we want to embrace for every day of our lives. Here it is, verse 18. What then? I can almost read that with a sense of a sigh from the Apostle Paul. What then? Oh. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, or in other words, in show or in truth, well, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then in my mind, I would think a bit of a pause for the Apostle Paul in this verse. And he says, you know, I will rejoice, and it's almost like he's talking himself into it. I don't want to read too much into the text, into the text here, but it's almost like he said, yeah, I will rejoice. I'm going to force myself to rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. I'm excited that Christ is being proclaimed, even though it hurts. So we read through this passage, what do we see? Simply, there's a gospel-centered follower of Jesus who's choosing to turn trials into opportunities. Let me say that one more time. There's a gospel-centered follower of Jesus who's choosing to turn trials into opportunities to promote Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. I mean, if we kind of summarize this, and usually we do our, our key idea at the end, I want to start off with our key idea today. And then we'll kind of filter from our key idea that'll probably run us through the next two weeks. Here's a key idea. Really focusing on gospel proclamation. Here's the key idea. We should faithfully proclaim the gospel. <laughs> okay, so if I want to take an application from this, these verses, I want to run to this idea. I, Andrew Scott, should faithfully proclaim the gospel. That's the heart of this text. You're like, how do you know that? Well, if you look in verses 12 and 16 on the back of your page, it's in green, you can see the highlighted gospel. 
The gospel is central to the conversation he has here. The fact that we are sinners saved by God's grace. But then, what is the response to that? Look at the underlying section, would you? He says this. He uses the terminology in verse 12. Advance the gospel. Look in verse 14. Bold to speak the word. Verse 15. Preach Christ. Verse 17. Proclaim Christ. Verse 18. Christ is proclaimed. What's the clear theme of this passage? If you narrowed it down to one simple statement, it would be this. We should faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then taken within context, because you don't want to just rip that out and ignore context. Taken within the context of these verses, how can we advance that even farther? Even through adverse situations and opposition. Paul is going through some pretty crazy situations in his life right now. We're going to look more about that in a minute. Well, if you take that even within context of the first couple verses that we've already looked at, we can advance it this way. This statement for this passage, because God has radically changed our lives. Verse 1, we're called saints. Verse 6, he who has began a good work in you, he will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, The fruits of righteousness in your life are by Jesus Christ. That is the radical change in our lives through the gospel. So let's fit those together. Because God has radically changed our lives through the gospel, we should faithfully proclaim the gospel. Even through adverse situations and opposition. Let's just unpack this a little bit for a couple minutes. Would you follow along with me in verse 12? seeing this idea. I want you to know, brothers, Paul says, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's the point here? A gospel-centered life faithfully turns trials into opportunities to promote Jesus Christ. There's a trial in my life, but it's not all about me. The trial in my life, and, and let's just be honest here, when we're going through a trial, physically, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, any of those ways, what's the temptation? To, to turn all eyes on me. <laughs> to focus on, woe is me. That's the temptation of our hearts. Clearly in this passage that you see Paul taking the perspective and refusing to focus on how woe is him and start to look around him at those who need Jesus Christ. What's the point of this passage? Faithfully, Paul, a gospel-centered life, faithfully turns trials into opportunities. Opportunities to promote Jesus Christ. Look with me at that verse. He says this, I want you to know brothers. In other words, this, I want you to be assured brothers. I, I don't want you to guess about this. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt something. What does he want them to know? That what has happened to me has fallen about or has happened, has served to advance the gospel. So as you read that center part of that verse right there, that what has happened to me, what is Paul doing there? We just want to go, by the way, when we go through these passages, we talk about this as an elder team. We don't want to just touch and go, all right? Just kind of give a little sermonette and kind of get a little cool part out of it and leave it. We want to not just touch our foot in the water. We want to dive in, okay? So that's where we're at with these passages. 
What is that center section? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. Think about this. What has happened to the Apostle Paul? What is he talking about? I think as he's writing this, and again, I don't want, my imagination goes. Maybe yours does as well when you read. But I'm thinking as Paul is writing this or using an amanuensis secretary to write this, he's speaking this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I can imagine maybe he lifts up his shirt a little bit and he's like, yeah, that happened. And that happened. And all of these happened. What are we talking about? We're talking about physical and spiritual scars in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, all of these scars, all these things that have happened to me came for a purpose. If we doubt that Paul went through physical scars, we have the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read a passage in just a minute. But when Paul is saying, I went through all of this, there are some very clear things on his mind, some scars. I mean, not just his whole life, but specifically, how did he get to Rome? If you remember through the book of Acts, we're talking about shipwrecks. Remember this? We're talking about his life being on the line. We're talking about him saying, all this has happened to me. He's very possibly looking at a chain on his ankle or on his arms. He can't go anywhere. Very possible looking and writing this stuff, as we see in this passage, next to a really tough dude, part of the Praetorian Guard. He said, all of this has happened to me for the advancement of the gospel. Can I just read a couple verses in 2 Corinthians? What has happened to the Apostle Paul? In our minds, we kind of candy coat what Apostle Paul has gone through sometimes. Just listen if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I am talking like a madman, Paul says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Paul's saying, I've been beaten so many times, I can't remember how many times I've been beaten. <laughs> countless beatings. Five times he received, received a certain type of beating. Here he says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's an int- We're not going to go into the depths on that one. That's a very intense lashing. Historically, you can go back and see what the Romans did, and then the Jews picked up on this. It was pretty intense. People would die from just that event sometimes. And he says, five times that happened to me. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Remember that story in, the, in, your, in your scriptures? He's stoned, left for dead. Remember this? He wakes up, he gets that, and goes back in town. I absolutely love that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So what has happened to the Apostle Paul? He says, I want you to know that the things that happened to me, a lot's happened to the Apostle Paul. You ever wake up in the middle of the night cold and you throw a blanket over the top of you? There were times, Paul, I mean, we find evidence of that. He's, he's writing saying, hey, would you just bring me a cloak that I could put over me so I can stay warm at night? This guy went through times of, of near famish in his life. 
I mean, I just referenced this alone story. I mean, this documentary. That's the Apostle Paul at times, traveling around the known world, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, it's happened to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to point out two quick things about this, and then we'll close up shop for the day. Practically, what does this trial, what what do these trials do in the life of a believer? Clearly we see this, and I'll, I'll go quickly through this. Two things we see from Paul. Number one, it impacts unbelievers. Number two, it encourages believers. We see the first one in verse 13. So that it has become known, made recognizable, it's obvious, it's evident, it's not hidden in any way. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Wow! Okay, in our minds, let's think back to who Paul is writing this to. Do you remember who he's writing to? The church in Philippi, in the city of Philippi, that the Roman honor system is a big deal. We're talking about military vets, Roman citizens living outside of Rome proper. They were guys that gave their life for serving Rome. They didn't die, but maybe they went through countless battles for Rome. This is the group of people in Rome, in Philippi. So when Paul mentions that I'm chained to the imperial guard, guess what they would have done? What? Okay, in my mind, my son David and I, we like, and my daughters too, uh, soccer's a big deal in our families, and we, David knows like all, every professional soccer player, I think, <laughs> and he, he shouts them out by name, but every once in a while you'll see on a, on a TV show, or even in, sometimes in person, you'll see somebody, and like maybe other people wouldn't know who that was, David knows who that is, dad, that's, and he'll name the name. I'm going to tell you, when Paul says, I am chained to the imperial guard, all of these people in Philippi, their heads perked up. Why? The imperial guard, the praetorian guard, is like the elite of the elite for the Roman army. They're soldiers. This is the the men's men. It's like the Green Beret, the Navy SEAL team of the Roman army. And what's Paul saying? Guess what, guys? I'm chained to one every day. (laughs) Guess what, guys? I get to talk about this praetorian guard about Jesus every day. He's not going anywhere. Like it or not, I'm telling you about Jesus. As we look at what Paul did in Rome, we see visitors come to, to Paul. He's living in house arrest. It's, it's really a neat situation. It's, it's tough for Paul, but it's a neat situation here in Rome where people could come visit him. And what would Paul do? He would sit down with them, especially as you look at what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, he would identify with them true theology. Paul is identifying true theology with these people in Rome. Guess who's listening the whole time? The Praetorian Guard. Guess what they don't, teens, guess what they don't have to put in their ears? Earbuds. As much as he wants to drown out the sound of the gospel, they can't. They've got to hear it. And Paul says, I want you to know that the whole imperial guard is hearing about Jesus Christ. Paul says, that trial that I'm going through, guess what? We've turned it on its head, and now it's all about Jesus Christ. But he didn't just stop with the whole imperial guard. He says, and all the rest. What does that mean? 
I mean, when you have a, a house in that culture, there were people that took care of the house. I'm talking about like the servants, uh, the people that made that household work. And what Paul is doing is he's telling the imperial guard about Jesus and everyone that comes around him, hey, Jesus can save you. Hey, Jesus can rescue you. Hey, 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 back there. Come here for a second. Did you know you have a Jesus that loves you and gave himself on the cross for you? Oh, yeah. You're supposed to tell me that. You're the Jesus dude in the house. <laughs> this is Paul. And he says, and I, I've made known to the imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, it has a dynamic reason. I'm not just here to play games. I'm not here, just here to waste time, to draw on the, the walls. I'm here to proclaim Jesus Christ. And I love this because if we tag this back to verse 6, he who began a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. There's a plan. And guess what the Apostle Paul is saying here? God has a plan for my life. And you know what it includes right now? That I'm sitting here chained to the imperial guard. So if I'm sitting here chained to the imperial guard, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what's happening here? He is living Christ and he's impacting unbelievers. And I'm going to say that's the same opportunity that we have every day of our lives. Maybe we're not chained to anybody. But maybe we're going through that physical bondage, that physical trial, and your neighbors are watching you. They know when you're going to the doctor's office. And they know that when you go there, you have such a hard, a strong burden on your heart, but you're still going with a smile on your face. They know that you're baking, you're, you're sending love, you're, you're talking to people. All along the way through the trial, you've got the joy of Jesus written on your face. You can't wait till they come to church with you. You can't wait till they, they know more about this Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, guess what the world around us is doing? They're watching to see if, you, if we have an authentic faith. What authenticates our faith so many times is the trials that we go through. Not only does it impact believers, here's another aspect of this. It encourages believers. So the trials that you're going through, the trials that we're going through, and I, and I don't want to take this lightly because I know there's some going in this room that are going through, through some really intense trials. I don't want to make it light. But the trials that we go through that we turn to promote Christ, it's encouraging, it's impacting unbelievers, it's encouraging the believers sitting around you. It's encouraging them. It's exhorting them to keep on going. How does Paul say it? Well, look at the verses. And most of the brothers, this is a very general term, brothers and sisters, Having become confident, I love that, they have found energy. <laughs> They've been convinced to the point of confidence. These people around Paul are watching Paul, and they're like, hey, if Paul can, I can do that. I'm not even chained to the Praetorian. I'm not even in prison. And Paul's proclaiming Jesus every day. Hey, I can do that. Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, he says, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're daring. They look at Paul's life and they're like, ooh, if Paul can do that, I'm going to dare to do that too. 
I want to be like that Paul who, who can't help himself but share Jesus with everyone. When I look at this passage, my mind is like, wow! This is awesome because a lot of times we want to keep trials at a stiff arm away, right? And what Paul is saying is this, bring on the trials Bring on the trials because what by God's grace I'm going to do is turn them to promote Jesus. Trials come on my life. Turn them to promote Jesus. And as I'm promoting Jesus, guess what's going to happen? It's going to impact unbelievers and it's going to encourage believers. That's where Paul's at in this passage. I, uh, I think about this in terms of real life things we go through every day. What are we talking about? This is the corporate professional who's ridiculed. The Jesus lady but who still prays in the name of Jesus and empowers others in the building that watch her. Oh, if she can pray to Jesus, I can too. This is the teenage girl who goes to school and still carries her Bible. And what does that happen? What happens to others in the school that go to their youth group? Well, if she can do that, I can do that. This is the teenage boy on the football team who refuses to talk like the world and embrace the world's view of sexuality but who shows the compassion of Christ to others. And guess what it does? Others, other believers in their group say, hey, if he can do that, I can do that. If he can stand for Jesus, I can stand for Jesus. This is the mom who lost her, who lost her child and still proclaims Jesus is so good. The mom community looks at this lady and says, if she can stand for Jesus and can embrace Jesus, I can do that. This is the midlife dad who finds out cancer is all the way through his body and he still says his way is perfect. What does that do to the person that has that cold? I can make it through another day. The person struggling with arthritis looks at this person and says, I can do it by God's grace because he's doing it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is this? It's turning trials into opportunities to promote Jesus in a contagious atmosphere of trusting in God and loving the Savior. I think in my life to my years as a high school student, uh, there was a fellow in my life who even to this day, I think fondly because he was one of my closest friends in Jesus that I've ever had. His name was James. This guy, James, and I, we came from different denominational backgrounds, but we both loved Jesus with all our hearts, and we ended up at the same public school, same soccer team and same wrestling team. We saw each other all the time. Different classes, he was a great ahead of me, but I'm going to tell you, this guy, James, he went through some trials in high school, some big ones in his life, but I'm going to tell you, I have never met a more forthright evangelist in the school than my friend James. He would tell people about Jesus. I mean, this guy, James, going through these trials, he would still invite people to come to church with him. And we ended up, we, he went to a different youth group, and then we ended up at the same youth group, and we kind of jumped around, he did. Uh, but he loved Jesus with all his heart. I'll never forget, it was my junior year, his senior year, and his dad was a strong believer as well. And my dad was a pastor, and we kind of got our heads together, and he's like, Andrew, I want to I tell Jesus to these guys on the sports teams. We started a Bible study in his home. We offered some dinner, <laughs> some spaghetti. His mom, some spaghetti, Jim. We offered some spaghetti, and on Tuesday nights, we'd have the football team over. It started with like three or four guys, some of the soccer team, some of the wrestling team. I'm gonna tell you, after a couple of weeks, that house couldn't contain 
the amount of students at that public school that came to hear Jesus Christ. This guy, James, was so contagious with his Christianity that he'd walk around in the, in the halls. He wasn't a weirdo. He was actually a pretty cool guy. But if you asked him what he thought, he'd say, Jesus saved my soul. He can save yours too. This is a guy who, 10 years ago, we were transitioning from Wisconsin to Colorado. We had our, I'd already um, accepted a position in Leadville. He called me and said, Andrew, what are you doing? I mean, he's got three kids. We have four at the time. He's like, Andrew, what are you doing? And we saw, went to coffee. He's like, hey, pack up your family with me. Let's go to Tajikistan. We're going to tell people about Jesus, Andrew. They opened up. It's like 99% Muslim, but we can get in. This is this guy. What does that tell me? If this guy isn't passionate about Jesus, I can do the same thing. You know what happened is I ended up traveling around. That was at our high school, but I ended up traveling around with uh, the Olympic Development Program, the U.S. National Program, and my club teams. And I'll never forget. I mean, this is kind of a culture that was set in James and I relationship. is telling people about Jesus. I would go then with my club team. He wasn't part of this, but I found myself. I'll never forget. At a, at a camp up in the middle of nowhere in Bozeman, Montana, the University of Montana, sitting there with a bunch of, there you go, yes for Montana. It was really cool camp up there. We're sitting there, a bunch of high school guys. We can't do anything because they locked us down in the dorm rooms. We're sitting in the dorm rooms. Guys on my team just all sitting around. And God's like, Andrew, it's time. <laughs> it's time to proclaim Jesus to this team. In my mind, realizing I got a friend, James, who's, He's been this way to proclaim Jesus. I can do the same. And guess what? Sitting in that room with 10, 15, might have been around 20 guys, probably closer to 15, sitting there saying, hey guys, can I tell you something? You were born into this world as a sinner, but God loved your soul. And God sent his son Jesus to die for you. One of my friends sitting over there who heard the gospel coming to Jesus. Right there at that camp. Another friend, another two friends Come talk to me later saying, you know what, I go to youth group, but I'm not the person I need to be for Jesus Christ. There was like a little mini revival on that club team. That's what happens. A contagious Christianity where I can't help but tell you what Jesus has done through my life. Even though I might be going through some adversity, even though I might be mocked for the name of Jesus, I'm still going to proclaim it. And what does that do? It impacts unbelievers and it encourages believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. What if that was Cross Point Community Church? What if we had such a contagious Christianity that when trials came our way, we couldn't help but proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? We couldn't help but turn those trials into promotion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.